You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Over 7 million different animals inhabit our planet. The range of the white-faced capuchins. Now, there's two species of white-faced capuchin. There's the Panamanian and then there's the Colombian. What can they teach us? Footage of white-faced capuchin monkeys in Panama's in their Cobia National Park. And they're using a large rock like a hammerstone and then a wooden anvil uh, to break open. Many species are in crisis and need your help. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com. Welcome to All Creatures Podcast. This is Chris. And I'm Angie. This could be a fun one. Anytime we talk primates, and I, 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 I would be hard pressed to find a more iconic monkey than the capuchin. I agree, Chris. The minute we decide on capuchins, I just was like filled with stories uh, that I've experienced. John has shared with me a ton of just really interesting and fascinating stories from the from the white faced capuchins that the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. I mean. They're they're iconic mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. they're hilarious and they're super smart. Holy cow! Yeah, yeah. that's where my mind was blown uh, this past week, and I still have more articles to read that I didn't even have time to get to about some of their social intelligence. And I'm not a primatologist, but I want to be <laughs> by trade. Yeah. Uh, animal behavior, yes, but primates are just so complex and the social behaviors and the intelligence so yes it's it's going to be a fun ride this week for sure well yeah and we're talking about the specifically the white face capuchin and then we kind of drilled down a little bit more into the more iconic panamanian white face capuchin a lot of this will obviously apply to the other capuchin species which we're going to talk about there's there's 22 of them from two different families but when you think of the white-faced one, that's the one you see in, in popular culture and, uh, you know, right or wrong, uh, th- they've been made famous uh, in movies and TV shows. Wrong. And but wrong, probably. Yeah. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. Because they are, they are, they are called the most intelligent of the New World monkeys. And, they, you know, even one of, it was National Geographic, one of their articles said the capuchins are experiencing their own Stone Age using stone tools, things that we're going to talk about because it's pretty pretty radical. Yeah, Chris, I like that word radical. And it definitely 
sums up capuchins and describes them, my experience with them as well. So yeah, we should get this party started. Yeah, yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be fun. Uh, real quick, just a shout out to our Patreon subscribers. Thank you so much for your support. Uh, Angie and I just did a live today. Thank you for those that joined. And just keep monitoring that space because we, we've got more stuff coming. And, and again, we are giving back to conservation from our advertising with our new network and also through our Patreon and I just want to give a big thank you to them and also to our listeners, you know, for supporting us so much. So thank you. And of course, Chris and I always appreciate a five-star review on iTunes as well as uh, written comments about how great our podcast is. So if you haven't already, please do that. We'd really appreciate it. Now, describing the capuchin, I mean, it's it's monkey size. We'll get into some of that. But I don't know. It, it's, a, it's iconic. I mean, once people see a picture, like, oh, yeah, I know exactly what, what it is. Well, Chris, the first word that comes to mind when I'm describing the white-faced capuchin is darling, for sure. Uh, almost like looking in the mirror a little bit because they their their face, their eyes, nose, and mouth is just so very distinctly human. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then, of course, around the skin of their face, they have white, yellow, white colored hair that runs across uh, basically past their ears and then about the middle, the middle of their head starts the black, and it looks almost like a black cap, depending on how they tilt their head down. But the white continues down their chest and about mm, a couple inches into their forearms, a little past their elbows, uh, and then the black fur starts. And then their back, hindquarters, tail are all basically solid black. So really a beautiful monkey, I think. Uh, Very, very distinct because of that white, cream, light yellow colored head, uh, upper arms, chest area. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, they're so adorable. Uh, Size wise, I mean, the the body lengths anywhere from 13 to 18 inches or 30 to 40 centimeters, but their tails are actually longer than their bodies. They could be up to 22 inches or 55 centimeters. Yeah. And that tail is prehensile, right? So they can Mm -hmm. use it for grasping, for carrying food, for additional posture support if needed. Mm -hmm. So it really plays a big role uh, in how they uh, locomote through the trees. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then, you know, weighs seven to nine pounds, four kilograms. So when you see them, and I've seen them up close, they're, you know, they're they're just monkey size. They're not tiny, like the squirrel monkeys, which we're going to talk about a little bit in evolution. But obviously, they're not as big as a great ape or a gibbon or something like that. And now, Chris, when you say close, how close have you been to a capuchin? Pretty close, Angie. I mean, within a couple feet. It, we were doing some behavioral research uh, back in the day with students uh, there at John Zoo, and so uh, I was pretty close to him. You know, not too, not too mm-hmm. far. Yeah. So I've been a little bit closer. That's <laughs> yes, uh, a keeper, I'm sure. No, 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 no. no, no. We always, uh, always uh, protected contact. That's true. That's had, true. Um, yeah. The uh, the enclosure between us. No, nope. This was in Costa Rica. Okay, okay. Mm-hmm. And it's a little sidebar story time because I've been dying to tell this story. 
And I will be throwing my older sister, Molly, under the bus, but I love you, Molly. You know, you're the best sister in the whole world. You're my favorite sister. <laughs> uh, but yes, uh, she's probably not the best person to pick in an emergency because uh, we were hiking, taking a nice little stroll through Manuel Antonio Park, and, and that's in uh, Costa Rica. It's on the West Coast, and it's one of the places that's like my dream spot. If I ever ran away, you'd probably find me there. It's just a small little national park. And I think we were only doing about a maybe a mile trek. Uh, it's right on the ocean there, the park, just beautiful. And we're hiking and talking and it's, there's some up and downs and uh, of, uh, tree roots and stuff. And it's a narrow path and beautiful, dense uh, forest all around us. And the white-faced capuchins are up in the trees and they are coming a little closer to us. Mm-hmm. Now, I hate to date ourselves, but this was many, many years ago, and it was before smartphones, and so I had a disposable camera, Uh, and so we were taking photos of them, and they they kept getting closer, and my sister, who is definitely a dog person, but not, not really like a behaviorist or an animal person other than her own dog and cat pets at home, is just thinking this is the most awesome thing ever. They're coming closer and closer to us, and there's probably about... 10 or 15 of them. And she's getting better shots with her disposable camera and and which is wonderful for her. And I I say, Molly, I I don't really like this. Like they're getting too close to <laughs> yes. us. It's it's yes. making me <laughs> the yeah. animal wannabe expert at the mm-hmm. time because I wasn't, I was still I, I was out of college. But yeah. uh, anyways. I said, I, this, they should not be getting this close to us. It's, I know, and she thought they were posing. And I finally mm. was like, get, we got to get out of here. Like, I don't, they keep coming. I'm like, have you seen their canines? They are sharp. Yeah, yeah. We're not doing this. And so she's like, okay, okay, okay. And so I start like leading the leading the way out of there. And I, and I am booking it a little bit, like not running because they weren't chasing yeah, us. Yeah, but yeah. just, I was like, it's time to go. And, and she, and I can hear her behind me and. The next thing I know, about a minute, a few minutes later, she is, <laughs> she's making noises, like weird noises behind me. And the trail's pretty narrow. And I'm like, come on, come on, like, let's go. And I hear these grunts. I don't even know what the noise was, but it was enough. It was odd enough mm-hmm. for me to turn around. And as I'm turning around on this narrow pathway, I look back and I kid you not, there is a capuchin monkey on my backpack. Jeez. And its little hand is trying to get in the side pouch where, of yeah. course, I had like a granola bar. Yeah. And unfortunately for the capuchin monkey, it messed with the wrong zookeeper at the time. <laughs> uh, I was, I didn't, I wasn't scared, but I was like, this is not a good situation. And so I, as I turned around, I kind of shook my back. And as I, move my elbow to kind of elbow it out of off my back uh the the plastic camera hit the hit hit the capuchin oh no not super hard but enough where he jumped off my backpack and he or she it's should say i'm not sure jumped off my backpack and started alarm calling uh in the trees it's just he he or she was very very mad at us yeah and it was a little bit shocking and not how you want to be hiking through the uh through the jungles of uh, costa rica yeah, of course, as we get out of there, 
I look at my sister and I'm like, Molly, like, wh- how? First of all, how long had the monkey been on my back? <laughs> she didn't say anything. <laughs> and she said, yeah, she, I don't know, probably like 20, 30 seconds. She, yeah. But she couldn't talk. She's like, I couldn't get the words out to tell you that there was a monkey on your backpack. So I was just like, not very helpful. I'm like, no, you were not very helpful. Thank you very much. <laughs> I was busy taking pictures. <laughs> right. She did not. She didn't document oh, it, it. it. She was in shock because she. Yeah. I, after I told her about the canines and that, you know, that kind of thing, she, she just couldn't believe it and didn't mm. know how to. I guess say, hey, Angie, you have a monkey on your backpack. Like yeah. you might, you might want to do something about it before it steals your granola bar or bites you. Mm-hmm. Or, uh, but it's funny as the story is, no animals were harmed. No white, no white faced capuchins were harmed. They, they, he or she, their feelings were hurt. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what had happened, and I, and this is probably, I don't know, 15, 20 years ago, is people were feeding yeah. these monkeys. Yep. And so yep. they habituated. were being habituated to humans and human presence and enough that they were brave to jump on a, a backpack. Or, yeah, to get and food. It, it, obviously, there wasn't a huge jump. It must have just kind of shimmied over from a tree to my backpack yeah. when I wasn't looking. Um, but yeah, it's that's why we don't feed wildlife right yeah, right there. That's yeah. a great example of it yeah, um, because yeah. they need to learn how to forage. And what I learned this week is they're extremely smart and extremely resourceful. They have traditions. They over, t- over time have evolved the way they use tools, which we'll talk about here when we get to behavior. So he, they did not need my granola bar, but I can't wait to get back to Manuel Antonio or Costa Rica in general mm-hmm, to, mm-hmm. uh, see more white-faced capuchin monkeys in the wild and howler howler monkeys uh just just a ton of beautiful wildlife there in costa rica and i and john hasn't been so i thought it'd be a great uh place to take the kids sometime it's funny because i i actually in my my section about conservation i'm gonna specifically highlight costa rica i didn't know you were gonna tell that story so that that's it, it, it's very uh, on point today because the range of the white-faced capuchins now there's two species of white-faced capuchin. There's the Panamanian, and then there's the Colombian. Panamanian runs from Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica into Panama, and then you have the Pan- the Colombian that runs from that part of Panama through Colombia down into northwestern Ecuador. So, so I was probably interacting with a Panamanian white. Absolutely. Patient. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So there are two species. They, they used to think there was not, there, there wasn't, but now with DNA and stuff that we, we, we can say, yes, they are two separate species of capuchin monkey and that's where they live and a wide range of habitats all throughout Central and South America, wet, dry, uh, primary, secondary forests. Uh, they do prefer more of the tropical or the dry deciduous forests. They can be as high as 2,100 meters, but mainly in that middle ground, you know, because a lot of highlands in Costa Rica, right? Like a lot of mountains. Oh, the mountains there. Yeah. Yes, they're beautiful, a little treacherous to drive through, <laughs> depending on how good a driver you are. I think we were so cheap back in the day, we didn't rent a, a four-wheel drive, so that mm. was are bad yeah. but once again this was 15 20 years ago so yeah. I, I i think a lot has probably changed uh, yeah. as far as some of the mountainous roads mm-hmm. well yeah Co- uh, costa rica's gone through a lot with ecotourism which i'm gonna get there in a second but let you talk about 
why care about capuchin monkeys? I mean, not just because they are so iconic. I mean, they, these are important seed dispersers. They are food for some predators. They're, they're, they're a, a big chunk of the biome there, right? Oh, absolutely. When we get to nutrition and they pretty much eat everything uh, <laughs> as omnivores, but yeah, tons of fruit. So they have a huge role in dispersing seeds and basically influencing how forests regenerate. But they also uh, help disperse pollen. And even more specifically, Panamanian white-faced capuchins can impact the ecosystem by eating insects that act as pests to certain trees. And then they prune other trees, which will then, after the pruning, cause the tree to make more fruit. And it accelerates germination. And then, of course, white-faced capuchins eat the fruit, which means they eat the seeds and pass the seeds through their digestive tract. So, voila, more forest regeneration. And Chris, too, I found it really interesting, not surprising, but interesting with the Panamanian white-faced capuchins that they are known to have these interspecific interactions. Say that <laughs> three times fast. Interspecific interactions with other species of monkeys to include Joffrey spider monkeys, the mantled howler monkey, and uh, panamanian white-faced capuchins will even sometimes travel with uh, squirrel monkeys. And it's really interesting how... They kind of interact, but they don't really, but they'll still move together sometimes. So researchers don't know if it's the uh, spider monkeys initiating it or if it's the Panamanian white-faced capuchin monkeys. So anyways, that's a really fun read. And there's also been reports of non-primate animals following uh, Panamanian white-faced capuchin monkeys, including white-lipped peccaries. That's, we got to cover that species. That's pretty cool. Agoutis, we need to cover them as well. Uh but what they do is they hang out uh, below where the white-faced capuchins are eating to pick up any fruit scraps yeah. that might yeah. be dropped on the ground. And so when you think about their ecosystem importance, I mean, all these other species are interacting with the capuchins in some way, shape, or form. And a lot of it we're still learning, especially when it comes to some of the other primate species and how they interact with them. So a really, really critical species uh, for the forest, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, and, and, and a lot of them are endangered. We'll get to that. But not to tell, you know, every week, I, I, I mean, I try to give some highlight on conservation, and and I know sometimes the, the news isn't great, but this week I wanted to go a little bit different. And Angie kind of alluded to that, which uh, is a good buildup to, you know, traveling to Central America, because as we, you know, exit this pandemic, uh, we're still, you know, teetering Sign a little bit. Me up. I know, I know, but we're, get, we're getting near the end of it, it, I think. I have no idea what the next few years are going to hold, but people are traveling again. And, uh, you know, it's hard to travel around the, you know, the planet, but Maybe, you know, especially for those in North America, Central America is not out of reach, you know, with flights and stuff, because Costa Rica is kind of going through a big travel boom right now, which is good, and Panama. And and that's really good because a lot of millennials are conscious, green conscience, and so they want to go somewhere and they want to do some of these ecotourism things. And like you just said, Costa Rica is a is a beautiful place to go. So... 
that's what I wanted to kind of highlight today a little bit on Costa Rica and, and, and why they're doing such a great thing. And, and this always goes back to when I spoke to Dr. Rebecca Cliff from the Sloth Conservation Foundation. She's based out of Costa Rica. And she said there's still some challenges, a lot of challenges going on there. But Costa Rica is pouring money into protecting their, their wild spaces because they, they actually ecotourism is making a, a big impact on their economy. And they want to attract those types of tourists. So Panama's doing this. Uh, the Galapagos Islands and Ecuador is doing this. Peru is doing this. So they are trying to uh, bring in these tourists, attract these dollars uh, using ecotourism. So I found a, an interesting article just to, to put that out there uh, in people's brains uh, when they're looking to travel. But uh, this was a, a very nice article written by As the Garg. And it was just came out uh, last month. And it was six ways traveling in Costa Rica changed my life. So they said their number one reason uh, that made such an impact on Costa Rica was their connected their connection to nature. That Costa Rica really is pioneering a lot of uh, ecotourism and ecotourist ex- experiences. Uh, more than twenty one percent of the land in Costa Rica is marked for conser- conservation, so that's one of the highest ratios in the world. Uh, they have tons of areas that you can go and hike through, see white faced capuchins, get them jumping on your backpacks. No, we don't want that, but like Angie, <laughs> no. but you know, you you can connect to nature there and 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 see it and you know, experience it. So that was one. One was, you know, learning to be a responsible tourist. So Costa Rica actually promotes a lot of being a responsible tourist, picking up your your garbage, using public transportation, uh, visit places that are dedicated to conservation. Uh, they, They actually encourage it when you go there to Costa Rica. And so she, they also wrote that they felt more aware and educated about nature and some of the challenges they're facing there. A lot of guided tours through there uh, to kind of show you what's going on in Costa Rica and the land. Um, and something that they wrote that I took away was learn to live in the moment, enjoy life. I think... I think a lot of us the last few years, maybe the, the, this pandemic has given us pause to reflect on life and we get so caught up in the rat race, especially living there in the U S take a, take a break, you know, look up in the trees, look for some birds, look in the oceans, go snorkeling, go diving, go experience the outdoors, go touch trees, live life, you know, get out of the fast lane sometimes. Yeah. Is that what what they say down there? Of course, yeah, in Costa Rica, Pura Vida. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and then it just, you know, they also said it's just just not only living life to the fullest, but experiencing a new culture, a new country, different foods. Yeah. Music. Yeah, I mean, your experience is there. sounds. Oh, I mean, I traveled so much in my 20s uh, that it's, yeah, it's, a humongous part of who I am today, uh, which I think I've turned out okay. Uh, still yeah. <laughs> a lot, still a lot of work to be done, uh, mm-hmm. and always, always evolving and always learning. But 
a lot of the traveling opened up my eyes and I think for definitely for the better, for sure. I, I mean, I always say I learned a lot in school and college mm-hmm. and grad school and all that. Uh, but my, the biggest, probably the biggest impact I had and what I learned is when I traveled. And yeah, this absolutely. This world is a beautiful place and there's a lot of beautiful people and animals and nature and it's definitely worth fighting for. That's for sure. Yeah. And just me living here in New Zealand, like it's been life changing. It's, you know, it, it, it's a different culture from the, from my American culture and a different part of the world. It, you know, being in the UK for so many months with Pip, uh, I've, you know, it just get out and experience this and get out of your comfort zone, realize we are all global and, and, you know, enjoy life. I guess that's my 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 takeaway message because I know we have a really younger audience compared to you and I in age. They're in their twenties. They don't Speak know what to for do. Yourself, son. <laughs> but you know, they go backpacking through South America. Go to Europe. Come to New Zealand. Come hang out with me in New Zealand. I mean, Chantel and Dave were just here. You know, we had a great time uh, tramping around uh, New Zealand. You know, they came over from Australia. When you can afford to get down here, I mean, flights are kind of out of reach in 2022, but by 2023, 2024, travel should be more open and get down to Costa Rica, get to Panama, uh, get to Ecuador, go see the Galapagos, Angie, John. Ah, it's definitely on my bucket list. <laughs> yes, Absolutely. yes, 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 yes. I'll meet you there. But it, it, just to tie this all up, I mean, ecotourism in Costa Rica has generated US dollars, $1.4 billion which is 3% of their GDP. So it really does help support conservation there. Now it fell by almost 70% during the COVID pandemic, but right now bookings are way up and it's starting to, to come back to Costa Rica and I know many other parts of the world. So my, my, and if you can't afford to go to Costa Rica, it, it, it's out of your reach right now, go somewhere local, Go to your local parks. There, there's a lot of beautiful places wherever you live on Earth. Uh, I know we have listeners in Europe and, and elsewhere. You know, go experience your local wildlife. Go experience uh, your local nature reserves. Support them. But if you can, you know, come to Central America. They they need it. These animals need it, uh, and we need those jungles. You know, absolutely. Very well yeah. said. Yeah. Okay. So that was fun. It's fun. And now I'm dying to get to Costa Rica. So it is it is definitely on Pura my top Vida. 10. Yeah. I got to explore Asia and Australia and Indonesia and New I Guinea. Know. Yeah. You know, I, I got to get back at it. Yeah. Back on the road. I know. I know. I know. But I do want to come home and, and then get down to Central America and South America. So just before we, we jump into evolution, Angie, I think it's a good place to take a quick break and we'll be right back. Hello, everyone. You may recognize me as Gabby from the History of Everything podcast. And my name is Brenna, and you don't recognize me from anything yet. Together, we're two scientists who explore all of the weird little questions and conspiracies of the universe in our new podcast, Mystery of Everything. Everything has an explanation. We hope. But that is what we're here to figure out. We will dive into the science behind many popular conspiracy theories, such as vaccines causing autism, flat earth theory, And was the moon landing fake? And if so, why the heck would anyone even do that? But it's not just conspiracies. There's a lot of cool mysteries that we will attempt to use science to explain, such as near-death experiences, what made the Vikings go berserk, and can I control my co-host with MKUltra? Wait, what? 
<laughs> anyway, make sure to check out the Mischief Everything podcast everywhere where you find your podcasts. All right, welcome back. So, uh, evolution. We've done uh, primates before. Always fun. A little bit different today with the the capuchins, the New World monkeys. I I don't know. Yeah, we have. We've we've done the. Uh, we did the gold lion tamarins. So yes, yeah, another so another another heart monkey. I know, <laughs> so cute, so cute. So the class is mammals, right? Fifty four hundred species. About the orders primates. We have over. 600 species, subspecies. Uh, the suborder is Haplohini, which is the dry-nosed monkeys, which is always fun. The other one is the Strepsihini, which is our wet-nosed monkeys, I guess, our lemurs and lorises and, and all of them. Uh, we love talking about them. Now, the, the infraorder is the Simiforms. So this gets into... The New World Monkeys, Old World Monkeys, the Lesser Apes, and the Great Apes, and then us. So all of our our fun relatives. And when we get to the New World Monkeys, the family of the Capuchins is Sebidae. So there's five families within the New World Monkeys, and this one is just specifically uh, Capuchins. So the other families are the Marmosets and Tamarins. Then the night or owl monkeys. Then you have the the sockies and some other monkeys in there. And then you have the howlers, spiders, woolly spiders, woolly monkeys. There's so many in that in this new world monkey family that we we've got to cover. They're just yeah, so yeah. We've got we've got our, our yeah. we've got it cut out for us. Lots of monkeys to cover. Yeah, 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 yeah. So I mean, new world and old world are obviously the closest relatives. Now within this family of capuchins. Angie. And I really wanted to spend a little bit of time here just really quickly, just because I think it highlights what is going on in Central and South America with rapid loss of deforestation. That's why it's like, go to Costa Rica if you can. Go to Panama. Let them know we want to save these areas. Because of the 22 species of capuchin, 17 are endangered. That's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. 17 are heading towards extinction. So that is nuts. And of those 17, two are critically endangered. The Ecuadorian white-fronted capuchin. And this capuchin lives in Ecuador and Peru. There's only about 300 left. And I didn't know this. That Like, what is going on, Peru? I know they're, they're I mean, it's, it's not like, I know we focus on Brazil. And Brazil, it's because Brazil has so much of the Amazon. That they're really the care care keep you know caretakers of it, but Peru I've I have read seen studies or, or seen papers that Peru's going through a lot of rapid deforestation too you know making making way for agriculture and things so got to get on it Peru we're coming we're coming to to, to well that's a beautiful I mean at, I, I've been there a couple times and yeah uh, it's beautiful it's a wonderful country to travel so more ecotourism there if you can. Yeah, please, please, please. And then the other one was the golden-bellied capuchin, uh, only about 400 left in Brazil. But both are... What about the blonde? Is the blonde just endangered, not critically? No, the blonde capuchin's endangered. So the Colombian and Panamanian white-faced are vulnerable. They're Moranin white-faced capuchins near threatened. Shockhead capuchin near threatened. Spix's white-fronted capuchin's vulnerable. Venezuelan brown capuchins endangered. 
So that's one step away from critically endangered. The Sierra de Perdido, uh, my Spanish is not very, uh, is not good. Sierra de Perdido, white fronted capuchins vulnerable. Rio Cesar, white fronted capuchin endangered. Varied white fronted capuchin endangered. Santa Maria, white fronted capuchin endangered. The blonde capuchins endangered. Black striped capuchin near threatened. Azaras capuchin vulnerable. Black capuchin near threatened. Crested capuchin endangered. So that's all the capuchins. And then the squirrel monkeys are in the same family. Uh, Three of the seven are threatened with extinction. So they're they're, uh, endangered as well. So they are, I think it just, just by saying that, that gives you an idea of the Amazon in Central America, the loss of their homes has, has really impacted a lot of these monkeys, you know, from Brazil over to Ecuador, up through Central America into Mexico. So anyways, I, I, I did want to highlight that a little bit and we can talk a little bit more about uh, the white fronted or the white face capuchins towards the end. Now, as far as evolution, we, we've kind of talked about this. I mean, 55, 65 million years ago, roughly, is when we have the first primate fossil. Molecular data suggests primates kind of emerged about 75 million years ago. And this was like the prosimian lemur, fat squirrel looking early, early, early primate. And then the first true primates were found throughout North America, Europe, and Asia, and Africa about 40 to 35 million years ago. The New World monkeys, like the Capuchin's ancestors, split from the rest of the primates about 40 million years ago. So, you know, long time. And the only data I could find specific on Capuchin's or the white-faced were the Panamanian and the Colombian split about 2 million years ago. And that's based on molecular data. Wow. Okay. That's- Which I mean, they look a lot alike, and they're pretty. They their ranges kind of overlap, but yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. So that was it for capuchins. Now, I always like to talk about human evolution when we talk about primates and Homo sapiens. We know emerged about five hundred fifty to seven hundred fifty million years ago. Now, us, our current version, Homo sapiens sapien, emerged in Africa around three hundred thousand years ago. And I don't know, I, sometimes when I think about this stuff, Angie, and I'm just bored and I'm thinking, oh, you know, oh, human population and human evolution, what have we been doing for 200,000 years? You know, it's like all of a sudden the last 200 years, 200, we've 200, right? I was yeah. really thinking about that since the industrial age. 200, yeah. like not that long. Has completely all. changed the planet, completely. Yeah completely. We've been around for a few hundred thousand years and most of us, our relatives for 160,000, yeah, mm-hmm. for 60,000 years, they were they were nomadic hunters. Nature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. It wasn't until about 13,000 years ago in, in Asia, Southwest Asia, so in the Middle East, you know, in the Indus Valley, I think near Baghdad or Iraq today in Syria, where we started settling down in agriculture. This is where agriculture started, right? And that started that ball rolling. And I had a really fun uh, graphic I found 
you know, the, the, again, we did this through, we talked about this with molecular DNA, how we've been able to track human expansion across the planet. And, you know, we didn't leave Africa until about 50,000 years ago, upwards of 70,000 years. Well, they said 70,000 years ago, we went into Saudi Arabia, down to India, 65,000 years ago into Australia. But we didn't get into Europe until about 45,000 years ago, and then into Asia about 45,000 years ago. Humans didn't make it into North America until about 16,000 years ago, and then down into Central America and South America about 14,000 years ago. The one I love is is Iceland. It was about 1,000 years ago when humans went there. <laughs> New Zealand, less than 1,000. It was about, what, five? Yeah, roughly 500 years ago. Is that if I'm doing it right? Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's about when. I mean, we, the Polynesians were, were landing on New Zealand, but didn't settle till about, you know, a few hundred years ago. And Hawaii, you know, like a thousand years ago. But, you know, we now dominate the planet. So we're... That's an understatement. I know. <laughs> well, it does all impact conservation. So, mm-hmm. you know, talking about the Capuchins and... All of that, like, I'm just like, what can we do? So we're almost at 8 billion people, Angie. I've been seeing this in the news. I I took this data yesterday, current world population 24 hours ago. So this is early September 2022. 7,971,000,000, almost 972,000,000 people. This year, there's been 95 million births, roughly, with about 40 million deaths. So a net human population growth of close to 55 million people. So I wanted to do this, Angie, real quick. Quick quiz for you. Looking at the human population growth, okay, can you give me a year in time, and I will tell you how many people were on the planet? Uh 500 AD. So in 500 AD, they they estimate there was about 200 million people, human beings on earth. Okay. You want to give me another one? Move in time. Um, 1,500. Okay. I was right on there. It was 450 million. So like doubled. Okay. Um, uh, 2,000. All right. Well, okay. Well, let's jump in. Let's let's go to 1900. <laughs> 1900. We had 1.6 billion. Okay. Pretty big. Okay. Pretty big 1950. Jump. We had 2.54 billion. Mm-hmm. And then you said 2000. We only had six billion. Twenty years ago, wow. we only had six billion. I thought it was more than that, but no. It was I six remember billion. That. I remember those days too. Yeah. And now we're almost at eight billion. So exponential growth, my friend. It's the you look at this graph, and by twenty one hundred, the estimate is there's gonna be close to eleven billion people on the planet. Yeah. So it's starting to peak a little bit, but so when we talk about human growth and impacts on conservation and why they're bulldozing the the rainforest it's, it's because we need to feed all these people so it's something that i think we need to start talking more and more about is the human population explosion because you look at that graph like you said the last 200 years it's it's really the last 
50, 70 years that the human population has just gone straight towards the moon. It's crazy. Right. Yeah. I mean, since we've been around, I mean, not that we've been around 70 years, but yeah, yeah I mean, in our lifetime, it's been crazy. The last 22 years, it's gone That's... from 6 billion to close to 8 billion. That's nuts. It's nuts. A lot of people, a lot of a lot people on the planet. Yeah, I know. A lot of garbage. All right. So we'll keep our eyes on that. I, I just always find it fascinating our own no, I appreciate story the, the visual those numbers are, are it's really impactful yeah 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 it's just uh our impacts on the planet and i, and I love our own history all right back to capuchin specifics some facts uh in the wild can live up to 35 years under human care 55 years right yeah, yeah. 45 is the average uh, i think yeah. 54 54 is the oldest mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, not a ton of physiology. I mean, we've we've done primates before. I mean, they can leap up to nine feet or three meters, pretty fast though. I thought this was this was surprising. Can run as fast as thirty five miles per hour or fifty six kilometers per hour. There was That's no way how, you would you and Molly were not getting away from them. We were not. That's why I hitched a ride in my backpack. It like yeah. zipped up to me, got on the backpack. <laughs> Try to steal the granola bar. It was pretty yeah. stealth. It, it was yeah. a stealth movement, that's for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, they're, they're pretty quick. And then what they eat, I mean, they're omnivores, plants, animals. And then, of course, white-faced capuchins, like most New World monkeys, are diurnal. So they're out during the day. They are found in the trees. Uh, very active during the day, looking for food and sleeping at night. And, of course, white-faced capuchins are very playful and inquisitive uh, of looking for food in backpacks mm-hmm, <laughs> and mm-hmm, hikers, mm-hmm. always looking for food, uh, which is which they're good at finding because they're so intelligent. Oh, very intelligent. We're gonna get there. We're gonna get there in a minute. But yeah, get into what they eat. I mean, a variety of of plants and animals. I mean, they're omnivores like us. I mean, the granola bar is fine. I mean, probably a ton of sugar in there, but. Uh, you know, it, it's they could digest that fine because uh, they eat lots of fruits and nuts, uh, insects, uh, some of the vertebrates that they'll eat, squirrels, rats, lizards, maybe birds. Baby um, kawadis. Yeah, no, little ones. Um, that one's on our list too, right, kawadis? It is. I definitely want to do kawadis soon. Now, generally, the, the, the research shows that their diet's about 50 to 80% fruit. 20 to 30% animal material than 10% plant material. So it gives you an idea of what these monkeys are eating uh, in the jungle. Now what eats them, you know, jaguars, ocelots, uh, caimans can get them, some snakes, boas, lance heads, and then harpy eagles. I think harpy eagles have, we did them so many ages ago. Uh, Amazing bird. bird. Yeah. Amazing. Big, huge. Yeah, they are massive. Well, Chris, uh, I have an interesting story about what the white-faced capuchins try to eat at John Zoo, the Santa Fe College Teaching Zoo. So he was telling me that uh, his capuchins, uh, there's um, Frap, Darwin, and Buster, what they do is they take some of their monkey chow, which is like a nice little biscuit or really any food or fruit that they're given from their their diet that's nice and healthy. And they uh, live in this this beautiful enclosure uh, out outside with a nice indoor habitat. But they will go outside to the mesh and they will drop food just outside of the mesh. 
And at the zoo, it's really beautiful. They have free-range peacocks there uh, that they just kind of move about the zoo on their own. And so the peacocks, of course, are attracted to the food. So the peacocks come over to the enclosure and the capuchins will try to grab them by the neck oh, no. to eat them. Oh, God. <laughs> now, John did warn me yeah. that no, thus far, no peacocks have been harmed in the making. But <laughs> That story, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but when yeah. we think about... Intelligence. Them, right, intelligence, yeah. hunting skills, mm-hmm. uh, problem solving, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I mean, they're literally baiting... These peacocks, which bless them, I, I don't know how intelligent they are. We, mm. we still have to cover them on the podcast. We do, we do. Or, no, do we do them? No, we are going to do peacocks. Okay. So we will. Yeah. So, but yeah, so they they come trotting up to get the food, and well, bam! <laughs> but the peacocks are typically protected because it's hard for the uh, the capuchins to get their hands all the way through um, the mesh. But yeah, just just fascinating, right? And uh, oh, yeah. so and, smart. And I think that just gives a little bit of a hint of what they're capable in uh, as far as looking and finding food. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I, going into that, it, it, this is where like I've, I've sent you a bunch and I'm sorry this week. I was like, Angie, you got to watch this video. Oh, Angie, you got to read this article. Uh, you know, Chris, looking up. I love that about you. I love it. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, we always send videos back yeah. and forth or articles and. Uh, and you sent me some long chapter books, and I'm like, I did. I'm he, sorry. <laughs> did he forget that I started teaching this week? <laughs> I'm sorry, but it's a really good read. I didn't finish yeah. it. Uh, I cannot tell a lie. My mother's daughter, but I I did go through some of the chapters uh, or paragraphs, I should say, uh, to highlight. But I really want to read it, and it's so it's going to be on my uh, on my computer on my nightstand to read before I go to bed this week. Well, I did. So, I did read it. Social intelligence and capuchin monkeys. I did read it. Good. Oh, good. <laughs> we'll you can talk give me about the it. Notes. Uh, but but leading that to behavior, Angie. I mean, like I said earlier, National Geographic had an article on capuchin monkeys going through their own Stone Age, and then another article: capuchin monkeys stone tool use has evolved over three thousand years. Their behaviors, they're gathering food, using stones to crush food, teaching. Like we, we go back to culture. I mean, go back to the Orca episode where we talk deep into culture and what is culture? How do you define culture? It's, is it just a human trait? Well, no. Now we see animals are doing it. Teaching their young ones how to use these tools. How far does this rabbit hole go with their intelligence? Chris, I, I, it's just incredible. This is where I'm like, now I want to become a primatologist and just study capuchins mm-hmm. because they're just so fascinating. Uh, they, uh, so many unique behaviors, just, it's, they're just blowing researchers out of the water. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. and so, but before I dive into some of the cool stuff I was reading this week, I, I think it's really important to po- point out and it's obvious, but White-faced capuchins or capuchins in general are super social, right? So they live in troops or groups of up to 40 monkeys. And of course, when you live in a a good-sized group, you have to be social. And so their social intelligence is just through the roof. Uh, But a little bit of uh, bullet points about uh, living in troops is usually with capuchins, a single male 
will dominate the group, which means he'll have primary rights uh, to mate with as many females as possible. Sometimes uh, in white-headed capuchins, they might be led by both an alpha male and an alpha female. But usually with capuchins, the male's in charge. And then females have a linear dominance hierarchy. And so among female uh, white-faced capuchins, social behavior with, uh, amongst each other is really important, or whether it's grooming or performing some of these uh, play behaviors I'll talk about here in a little bit. It's just, uh, it's, it's very, very necessary. And that doesn't mean that males don't interact at all socially or play or groom each other. But typically when you're observing them, observing, uh, doing a time budget, Female to female kind of specifics are going to groom a lot more than male to female or male to males. And when it comes to male to males, uh, they typically get along because once again, there is usually um, a dominant male. Uh, and so aggression's not often seen. Uh, and when it is, it's usually uh, nipped in the bud pretty quickly. Uh, however, fights can escalate depending on how much a younger male might be uh, challenging the older male and they sometimes can end you know really really poorly for the loser but in general that that doesn't happen that often and what's fascinating about panamanian white-faced capuchins is that their male that's in charge has been known in studies to reign if you will for lack of better terms for up to 17 years wow yeah so yeah i mean it's just really really fascinating and Chris, on the flip side of that, what's more frequently seen with white-faced capuchins is that, of course, the males are getting along, right? Because they live in this cohesive group. And there's awesome, awesome studies that have shown that uh, there's friendship or affiliation between males. Uh, they'll play together. Uh, they'll groom each other. And they'll even cooperate together against uh, predators and help defend their territory. So uh, the Capuchins are pretty territorial uh, in defending the area where they're uh, living and, of course, um, uh, foraging. So uh, it's it's just really, really fascinating. And from a social intelligence, uh, there's been observations of if there are uh, two males fighting or even a female fighting with a male or something or another female, they have been observed basically getting their friends, so whoever they're more bonded with, to come join them and help them in whatever they're fighting. So a lot of social dynamics and interactions and intelligence there to be like, okay, you're my friend because I groom you more or play with you more. And so you're on my, you know, come be on this side of the fight or right, whatever. Right, right, right. And then lastly, Chris, I think it's important to point out that the female uh, white-faced capuchins have this linear dominance hierarchies. And so a lot of times they basically hang out with their related kin uh, and they stay in the group. They, they're there. And so males will migrate to a different group, a new group, uh, actually multiple times throughout their lifetime probably trying to get that dominant status or moving around as needed. And they'll, they'll leave the group that they were born into um, basically between two years of age and up to 11 years of age, depending on how they're fitting in the, their current social status. 
so very, very complex and, um, and definitely movement of, of different males coming in and out of groups, depending on, uh, depending on what's, what the cohesion in the group status is. No, I mean, I, there is so much complex behavior with primates. No wonder why you want to go study it. I mean, that that lifetime of just one species, you know, like we go back to, to Jane Goodall and, and all the other primate specialists. It is it is amazing. And, and those males are leaving because I mean, that's a good way to get genetic diversity. And, you know, they go out and spread genetics, uh, mating with other in other troops, getting absorbed by other troops where, you know, makes sense. It's almost like lions. You know, I go back to lions in my head. Males get kicked out. Females stay in the pride. The males wander around trying to take over a pride. Probably similar to that. But 17-year reign, that's a long time for a male. Well, and that was interesting because there was a study with that one in that looking at uh, diversity in genetics because – the male was around his granddaughter. Yeah, exactly. And, and so try if, and so in that situation, a lot of times the genetics aren't potentially as diverse as they should right. be. Yeah. But yeah, it's still just fascinating nonetheless. Now, Chris, I think the other thing that's really important to highlight as far as uh, the social behavior of white faced capuchins is their social play. So all members of the troop, especially of course, the kids, the juveniles, uh, love to play and love to wrestle. And that's why if you go to your credit, local accredited zoo or watch any of these National Geographic videos of uh, white-faced capuchins or capuchins in general, their play behavior, they're just so fun to watch, right? They're just yeah, it's like yeah. watching kids in a playground. I mean, it's just, it's just lovely. Uh, but the Panamanian white-faced capuchins have some particularly interesting behaviors within their own troops that are much different than other capuchins or other new world monkeys or older monkeys in general. And this actually was a really fun talk that John and I had, of course, one evening when I'm reading about all of this and I'm like, John, does Darwin do this? What about Fred? <laughs> and yes, we are that dorky. We have these yeah, conversations yeah. <laughs> at night when most people are probably like watching Netflix. Yeah, yeah. Anyways, and so uh, the behaviors I was reading about, these social play behaviors in the Panamanian white fist capuchin are tail sucking, hand mm-hmm. sniffing, mm-hmm. finger biting, hair prying, eye poking, and then mouth play basically where they retrieve an object from a partner's mouth and they go back and forth and try Mm -hmm, to steal mm -hmm. it from each other and then put it in their mouth. Just a really unique, uh, strange, I guess, behavior. And so Chris, it's really important to note too, that all of these social play behaviors that are unique to Panamanian white-faced capuchins were observed in the wild in northwestern Costa Rica in four sites uh, in a study that lasted or recorded over 19,000 hours of watching the, uh, these different troops, which mm-hmm. is just an, an incredible commitment, on, in my opinion, for someone who's taken a lot of behavior. behavior but I don't think I've yeah. done 19,000 hours <laughs> total, but uh, no, anyways, no. it's a lot. So. But the researchers reported they observed all those behaviors, those silly behaviors I mentioned already, uh, and that they found that some of these behaviors or traditions, if you will, will ebb and flow and may even die off after seven to 10 years. 
And one thing that the researchers did note is that some of these behaviors do become die off or become extinct. Uh, some of these traditions uh, after ten years or so, and so researchers speculate it's because the social bond is strong enough. Like I have been sucking your tail, sniffing your hands, biting your fingers, poking you in the eye. And when I mean when I say poking, I I mean the way that it was described is like taking the finger and pushing it underneath the eyeball and then like smashing it in there, which is just fascinating because you think of all the dirt that's getting in their I eyes. I know, I know, I know. Yeah. Just really unique behaviors. Uh but yeah, once they've done it a lot, you know, for 10 years, then they're thick as thieves and then okay, we can we can kind of forget about those silly behaviors and move on to something else or start another one. So just really just incredible. I mean, these are unique to white face capuchins. So you don't typically see that in squirrel monkeys or mm-hmm, howler mm-hmm. monkeys or other species of capuchins. There are some strange, if you will, social bond interactions that are uh, have been observed in Japanese macaques that strengthen bonds, but not this like hand sniffing. And mm-hmm, uh, they mm-hmm. really, they really like sniff each other's hands. They just really, you know, sniff it. And, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. and then the tail sucking each other, they suck each other's tails. And so John and I was, were talking about it and I was asking him, like, does Darwin do this? Does Frap do this? And it was so cool because for those of you that listen to the podcast long enough, you know that usually my husband's like a, a day ahead of me and always like, mm-hmm. oh, I know that. Or, oh, mm-hmm. but I started telling him about the tail sucking of one another's tail as a way to bond. And one of his uh, males, I think I believe it's uh, Darwin, will suck his own tail. And John was under the impression that it was just like a stereotypical behavior or mm-hmm. something that he, uh, you know, maybe learn but didn't learn correctly or something to comfort himself but then he realized that this um this uh individual had been reared by himself because he was not in a great situation i think he was rescued or something and so he's probably sucking his own tail because he doesn't have the social skills or he hasn't learned that you actually are supposed to suck somebody else's tail yeah, and do that, yeah. and so it was a real aha moment for John. He's in because he's like, "Wow, I'm so glad that you're diving this deep into the literature, and helping me learn more, and having these aha moments with um, with primates that he's been working with for years." So that was a fun moment for me. I was like, "Yes, one score, <laughs> Angie one, John like a thousand. <laughs> oh no, he's just um, he's just a zoo nerd like us. He's just been yeah, around a yeah. while. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah. So the next time you go to your local accredited zoo and if you see uh, white-faced capuchins doing some of these silly behaviors, uh, they're not being totally silly. They're actually reinforcing their social bonds and, and, and playing with one another. And maybe take a moment and just think about how these different species utilize their traditions and their behaviors to communicate to one another. And really quick, Chris, before we uh, jump into some of the intelligence of capuchins, I have to mention self-anointing because we talked about oh, it yes, last week yeah, yeah. with hedgehogs. So if you haven't heard that species, uh, take a listen. Hedgehogs was a lot of fun. And I actually, the boys and I watched uh, Sonic Hedgehog. This, yeah, uh, the it was movie. a good movie. Yeah, cute. yeah it, it's was, cute. it was entertaining. 
in but yes, uh, the Panamanian white face capuchin is known to basically self-anoint uh, with plants, uh, citrus fruits, uh, vines, uh, and ants and millipedes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so a lot of different things. And then their own urine, too. They'll, they'll yep. rub uh, urine on their hands and legs and stuff as well. And researchers aren't sure why the Panamanian white-faced capuchin will rub millipedes and ants and all sorts of things on its body. Uh, it might be used as a way to detour parasites, like ticks and insects, from biting it. It could be used as a, a fungicide or a bactericide or maybe an anti-inflammatory agent. Uh, or it could just be a bizarre mechanism of scent marking right Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm, mm -hmm. so at the zoo uh darwin frapp and buster will uh self-anoint with onions and garlic when they're giving those for enrichment (laughs) john said anything stinky they're rubbing it all over the body Uh, that's too funny that's too funny and besides scent or scent marking other forms of communication that are important to white-faced capuchins are vocalizations and so the different vocalizations mean different things, but in general, they have alarm calls uh, that can be different depending on what type of intruder is coming by. Uh, and they bark, they cough, they have loud calls, uh, softer calls, squeals, and then, of course, like different little coos and stuff like that between uh, moms and babies. And the white-faced capuchin can even use a trill-like vocalization to help uh, coordinate how the group should move. So I thought that was pretty fascinating. But uh, yeah, it's going to be a different noise if a bird's coming versus a human. Or if they get hit by a plastic camera. (laughs) uh, (laughs) Not happy. Get off my backpack. Yeah, freaked out hikers swung at them mistakenly. Uh, So, yeah, definitely very very vocal creatures. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Now, we got to talk about intelligence because that's all the stuff I was just like bombarding you with. Because I was just like, the stone tool use. I mean, that video I, I sent showing the panamanian white face capuchin taking big rocks smashing nuts to get to the insides like and then teaching the young ones how to do it or the young ones using pebbles and things like it's it's wow wow the social intelligence and that paper like i said i read uh, the origins of the social mind the social intelligence of capuchin monkeys i found fascinating uh, sorry, I jumped into your lane. I just, I was like, wow, no, it's just too I, much. Chris, you are always welcome in my lane. <laughs> yeah. You are welcome in my car. Yeah, in I the know, front seat. I know. Shotgun, buddy. <laughs> Absolutely. Because it is, it's so, I mean, it's, you don't have to necessarily be a behavior nerd like me to, mm-hmm. to have your own mind blown. And that video you sent me, we'll have to put on our show notes, was just so incredible. Yeah, I know. Uh, it was. It was this amazing footage of a white faced capuchin monkeys in Panama's and their Cobia National Park. And they're using a large rock like a hammerstone and mm-hmm. then a wooden anvil uh, to break open everything from hermit crab shells, snail shells, coconuts, and other food items. So, I mean, 
this is some serious like stone tool use. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. this these are not chimpanzees, right? Mm-mm, mm-mm. And Chris, what I didn't realize is capuchins are considered like the most intelligent new world monkeys. And I mean, and we're still learning more and more about their intelligence every year. Like I think that video footage was from like 2018, 2019. So, so we're really in this like exciting groundbreaking time of what we're learning about them. But besides using the hammerstone and, uh, and anvil, uh, Panamanian white-faced capuchins have been known to use tools in other different ways. Uh, They will use sticks. So they'll often grab sticks to protect themselves. Uh, They've been seen using sticks to beat snakes, like if a snake has an infant or something, to get the snake to release it. Oh, wow. Um, They'll use sticks as a probing device to explore different crevices, which we know with chimpanzees and stuff like that, they do a lot of sticks and termite fishing, we call it. And then, of course, that social intelligence paper that you sent me, which was just mind-blowing. Now, that's that, in that paper I read, the social intelligence and capuchin monkeys, and it was them trying to study and understand that they, they actually observed them being deceptive yes. to one another. You know, so yes. they were showing signs of deception uh, to get to food and then also cooperative. Uh, I forgot you did this with one of the species where they, they, the push pull pulley, like even though one won't get the reward, they will actually cooperate with the other one. So the other one does get the reward. Yes. Uh, it's called yeah. reciprocal altruism. And so yeah, yeah. altruism is doing an act for somebody else that you don't get any obvious reward or safety for. It's not symbiotic at all. It's basically only only the one animal gets a reward from it. And so in these cooperation studies, yeah, they basically work together knowing that, okay, I'm not going to get anything out of it. You're going to get the food reward. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's just incredible. Yeah, uh, yeah. And so a much more research uh, needs to be done just to make sure that these monkeys, they, I mean, they really do think it's spontaneous and they're learning as they go for a lot of these uh, different uh, social studies that they're looking at. But in the same instance, it's like, okay, we got to repeat it and see more of it to make sure that they're just not basically using operant conditioning or uh, positive reinforcement to, to, to learn the tricks of the game or basically outsmart yeah. the researchers. <laughs> I think yeah, that's, that's yeah. what they're worried. Like they may have outsmarted us, which once again, is another checkmate, another point for them. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's just, it's just incredible. Incredible, and I and I think it just really opens up our eyes to you know these are monkeys that were used to be like put in boxes and what are they called what what were those called the was it marionettes or oh no the grinder yeah it yeah, was the, the grinder yeah they were yeah they used to be the the organ grinder you know on yes. a ro- on a rope or on a, a leash and yeah. to, to get money yeah 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 so the last ten minutes that Chris and I have been talking. She's, maybe even longer than that, let's be real, yeah. uh, should shut that down forever. I mean, it yeah, just goes yep. to show that, I mean, these monkeys do not belong on a rope uh, in a tiny cage by themselves in a lab under in inhumane or unnatural conditions. I mean, they need to be with their troop. They need to be able to forage for food. Uh, they need to be, uh, when they are living under human care in accredited zoos, they have friends, enrichments, large enclosures. 
So we need to see them like we do at accredited zoos. Uh, if they are under human care with a nice social group and a big enclosure with natural uh, trees and able to forage for their food, enrichment, um, training programs, all of those things to, uh, to just, I mean, help them use their minds and engage in all these natural behaviors that they, that that's in, in their DNA. Yeah. 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 They are very smart. It's very fun. All right. Before we jump to repro, I think we should take a quick break. All right, we're back. Angie, reproduction, you know, how do they differ from other monkeys or are similar, I guess? Yeah, I think there's a lot of similarities um, with other capuchins. But in general, the white-faced capuchin is polygamous. And so the male is going to breed with as many females as possible. Um, And breeding season is going to change a little bit depending on exactly how far north or south they are. But Peak fertility is going to be from January to April, and they will mate outside of these months, but uh, those breedings rarely result in a conception. And because there is this dominance hierarchy among males in the troop, uh, the alpha males definitely have more breeding opportunities. However, some subordinate males are allowed to mate if they're uh, if they're in, if they're in close with the big guy, uh, so sometimes like the second command will uh, will get some 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 opportunities to breed. And as far as capuchin courtship goes, uh, males and females are going to have their own set of courtship vocalizations, a lot of facial expressions and postures to basically signify that uh, they are ready to copulate. And some female capuchin monkeys have been observed throwing rocks at males that they like. <laughs> that's a good way to flirt. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, huh, you know what? That sounds about, I mean, I feel like there's not maybe rocks, but that's probably like, is, there's some similarities there to um, our uh, us humans, right? And how we sometimes will court in, in non-conventional ways. But once again, they're so intelligent and social that researchers don't know that this rock throwing at the males is this just this own troops tradition and that some females learn it from other females and be like, oh, that makes sense. And then they do it. So it's just really uh, there. It's just just each troop can be somewhat unique. Right. Pretty cool. So when a female um, does become pregnant. She, her gestation period is about 160 days or five to six months. And uh, they give birth during the dry season, which is going to be from December to April. So not, not it's not a cold season really, right, in um, Central America, but definitely a dry season. And then, of course, the infant will be carried on the uh, on the female's back for about six weeks, going everywhere with her. And typically around week four or week five, it'll start to leave its mom for a little period of time. And by three months, the infant uh, can move around independently. And uh, weaning does not occur until about six to 12 months. So, you know, they, they stick with their mom for a long time. And most of the care for the infant is going to be by the mother. The female white capuchin mom will protect the baby, feed the baby, carry it, of course, uh, until they're able to take care of themselves. However, 
Capuchins do engage in a lot of alloparenting. And what that means is other monkeys besides the mom will help care for the infant. And this alloparenting happens primarily between week four and week six. And typically males don't engage in any type of parenting, but it should be noted too that the males will protect uh, the mom and the infant from uh, predators. So they, they play a, a very big territorial role in keeping uh, the young ones safe. Uh, and a female white capuchin is going to only give birth every other year. So two-year intervals, so not every year. And female white capuchin monkeys don't become sexually active until they're about four years of age, and they don't give birth until they're about seven. Whereas males uh, typically don't become uh, sexually mature until they're about seven to ten years old. Now, John reminded me that this is in the wild because he's, yeah. there's, there's uh, it, in under human care, it's, it's usually a little bit different um, because there's, they're usually not as big of troops. And so there's not as much um, competition, uh, or competition yeah. and things like that. And they're fed really well. So, um, but yeah, but in general, if you think about that, I mean, when we talk about these species of capuchins that are either threatened, like the Panamanian white faced capuchin or endangered or mm-hmm. critically endangered. Now they're all going to have a little bit of differences between their birthing intervals and their age of sexual maturity, but in general, it's probably similar. And so, yeah, I mean, if you're not giving birth until you're seven or breeding until you're winning breeding rights until you're seven to 10 years old, if you're a male, I mean, you got to stick around that long. I mean, that's, and then we're, if we're trying to build these numbers up, in some of these critically endangered populations, it's, it's not. An, and then I, I probably skipped over it in the beginning, but uh, they're only giving birth to one infant. Twins are very rare. They do happen, but it's one infant at a time. And a lot of investment. I mean, it's a, a lot, lot of investment. A lot of parental yeah. investment. Investment from the other troop members, the females as well with the ALO parenting. So, yeah, I mean, that's why we, I mean, we have to, we have to save these forests and keep fighting for these guys. Well, you know, we made the list of all the the 17 species that are endangered and just looking at just the white face, you know, they're vulnerable. I mean, clear cutting, logging, losing their home is is the primary driver of them towards extinction. But, you know, they they are hunted, uh, especially for the pet trade. So, you know, kill the parents, grab the baby, that happens, bush meat. Or farmers will will kill them because they're in their crops or co- being a nuisance. So they they are getting it from from all different angles. And according to one source, the white headed capuchins populations have declined by forty three percent in the past twelve years. That they went from ninety five thousand to now fifty four thousand. And this data is like over a decade old, so it could be a lot less than that. So there there is quite a bit of challenge there and. Before Angie goes to her organization, my conservation tip of the week, Angie said that the organ grinder, that the old monkey organ grinder, that's just not acceptable today. Uh, you know, so simple monkeys are not pets. They shouldn't be kept as pets. It's so unfair to the animal. And I would say do not support people that exploit monkeys. I see them, you know, uh, not here in New Zealand, but I remember back home, you know, seeing them on, 
on corners or people trying to get money because, oh, look at my cute monkey or some celebrities buying monkeys as pets. It's just not acceptable today. I'm sorry. Please don't support those people, uh, you know, or those businesses that, that really exploit them. But anyways, who's out there fighting for capuchins? Yeah, Chris, all of what you said, 100%. Uh, capuchins are just so intelligent, emotionally complex. They live a long time, intricate social systems, tool use. Uh, they just require dynamic environments to thrive and to, to meet their behavioral and emotional needs. And private homes, private owners, as much as people probably love them, they just they cannot thrive the way um, – that they need to. And so it definitely, I mean, I, I don't, I don't think they should be used in movies as pets. I don't think they should be on cards dressed up, uh, like Hallmark cards, any, anything like that. Um, but anyways, I'll get my soap back because this week I want to talk about a group and highlight the World Land Trust, which is an organization that takes direct action to save critically threatened habitats. And we've talked about them before on the podcast, I believe, um, because I think that the a big piece of this puzzle with a lot of these endangered and threatened capuchin monkeys is the forest that they live in, right? The World Land Trust, which can be found at worldlandtrust.org and are available on all social media platforms, is an awesome group that basically purchases land. And so um, it's been around for about uh, 30 years and they have a really impressive track record of achievements. And they have a lot of overseas partners and they've purchased over 2 million acres of tropical forests and other threatened habitats to basically ensure that more than 4 million acres of land are in active protection worldwide. And so they help obviously save real acreage. Um, They create corridors for wildlife. Uh, They empower local partners um, wherever they are buying the land to make sure that the people uh, that live there locally have um, some skin in the game and are invested in the wildlife that lives in the land that they buy. And the World Land Trust, of course, is uh, big in education and planting trees and helping uh, companies become more carbon neutral. And they basically are just keepers of the wild and are really impactful for species just like the Panamanian white-faced monkey and several of these other uh, endangered or critically endangered capuchins that we've been talking about today. Yeah, doing some good work out there, doing some really good work out there. So thank you so much for listening. Uh, Stay tuned. We've got some exciting stuff on the horizon. We just finished off a, a massive interview last week that will be out soon and we'll be talking about that one here pretty quick. I know Angie and I are busy, uh, you know, getting more interviews. We have a couple more really fun ones uh, already lined up. So stay tuned for that. Uh, But I know we're going to be back with the species next week. Not sure which one we're going to do yet, but we've got a good list going. So keep those comments coming. Thank you for all the support and love and uh, stay tuned. Thank you, everyone. Listen, learn, share. Join the movement at allcreaturespod.com.